This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is Jaden, and you're listening to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Candy. I'm excited about our topic today. I am sure you are too. I am. Yes, guys, this month we are going to be talking about the true crime behind some of Hitchcock's classic suspense movies. Yes. What a way to start the new year. Right? (laughs) Now, I know you have been a Hitchcock fan for a long time. Oh, very long time. Why don't you share with us briefly why you are such a fan of Hitchcock? I came through the fandom through the way he created film because I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was very young and I watched all the old classic movies and I just fell in love the way he told stories because they just made sense to me. I like the way he did his shots. I like the way he directed. I like the way I just I just loved I admired his career in the same way that I would later admire Steven Spielberg's career the way he would make a story come to life for Steven more through where he could make the characters just seem real and do nuances for Hitchcock. It was more the technique Mm -hmm. is what I admired about him and I'm excited about this because I have always loved a mystery. I love suspense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love mystery. So this is going to be a great month, I think, for us and also I hope for all of our listeners. Yes. We are starting with a classic movie that calls upon an even more infamous true crime event. So this is going to be a very, very interesting episode. I think throughout this entire month, we should probably always start with just a little listener discretion since Mm -hmm. we are going to be talking about true crime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If that's something that, you know, you want to be conscious of. Then just listen to the half about the film. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So we are starting with Rope. A 1948 film directed, of course, by Sir Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. And it was actually his first color movie, which I'm sure you knew. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to give us a little summary. And then before we go into talking about some of the the research that I found Mm -hmm. about first the movie, then the true crime, I thought I would let us share a few of our impressions of the movie up front. Okay. And then we'll save some of our analysis for the end. When we armchair, we can talk about some of the comparisons between the two, the true crime and the movie itself if that's all right you got it okay so from imdb the short summary was two men attempt to prove they committed the perfect crime by hosting a dinner party after strangling their former classmate to death one sentence but it says a lot yeah yeah and that's a pretty concise but accurate summary if you've not seen the movie and this would be one you might want to like pause and go watch the movie before you come back to the episode yeah i'm I'm getting ready to spoil the heck out of it but it is such a good film yeah 
that. I think you would enjoy it because it's very suspenseful. Yes. But this summary gives a little bit more of that detail. Two arrogant young men, Philip Morgan and Brandon Shaw, kill a friend for no apparent reason other than to show they can get away with it. They put their victim, David Kentley, in a chest in the living room where they are having a party later that evening. The guests include David's father and his also one of parents, their... I his know. aunt. Yes, yeah. father and aunt. And also one of their former teachers, Rupert Cadle. As the evening wears on, Brandon, clearly the bolder of the two perpetrators, continually pushes his chances, becoming ever bolder. Philip, on the other hand, begins to regret what they have done and combined with too much alcohol begins Mm -hmm. to act oddly. All this leads to Rupert starting to wonder exactly what they have done. So those were both from IMDb and I think they give you a little taste of what the plot line of this movie is Mm -hmm. if you are not familiar or if you needed a little review. But what were some of your impressions of the film, Ashley? We can kind of just bounce back and forth. Okay, so you haven't mentioned this yet, so I'm wondering if you knew the trivia that it was actually called Rope's End and it was a play written by Patrick Hamilton. I did. Who also wrote Angel Street, the show that you love. Yes, Angel Street Gaslight. I got super excited when I saw that. And I noticed in the opening credits it was adapted by Hume Cronin, who is known as Jessica Tandy's husband. Oh. Yes, he was a playwright. I thought that was very cool. Yeah, it was kind of sad because they gave Patrick Hamilton a stab at it and then didn't like what yeah. he did yeah so they gave it to Hume and didn't necessarily they weren't up front with Patrick about what they were doing so then oh, he was disappointed that's a bummer when he found out secondhand mm-hmm. what was going but on but Angel Street was written in 1929 and these crimes happened in 1924 and I would like to know what happened in Patrick Hamilton's <laughs> childhood that allowed him to write Rope and Angel Street where he could write psychopaths so well oh, yes. like honey let's sit down let's have a cup of tea together and you tell me your tell me your problems. Well, I didn't do a deep dive, but I think poor old Patrick had a challenging life. I so heard, yeah, maybe I saw that some too. of this wasn't, wasn't too far off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I noticed that I, I have in here that I took notes as I was watching it. And I thought you would like this note right here. I said the dialogue is so sparkly, and the tea in this room is piping right. because Janet and Brandon dated, and then Ken, <laughs> then she dated Kenneth, then David, and Brandon doesn't want her because he's encouraging Kenneth. So it's just like. What is happening here? Oh, but Brandon is so manipulative. Oh, like he's, I know. he's torturing. He's like this little, I don't know what the word is. It's like he's just jabbing, just yes. jabbing constantly. He's, oh, he was so malicious. And the maid likes Rupert and they're trying to encourage her with Rupert. It's like, <laughs> what is happening? And I thought the line where the aunt says, these hands will bring you great fame. Mm. And they focus on his hands. I watched Psycho, how Alfred Hitchcock manipulates an audience. I think it was in this where they they talk about how he shows hands a lot Mm -hmm. and how he shows what these hands did and he focuses on hands doing a lot of things like that. You know what? I'm going to jump in and to to follow up on those two points that you just made. I've noticed I'm not the Hitchcock expert that you are, but but I'm starting to see patterns doing the research Mm -hmm. for this month and one of the things I've noticed that you alluded to was how intentional, I'm sure this is the screenwriter as well not just Hitchcock, but the intentionality of the little, little inside jokes that are kind of ironic are mm-hmm. kind of a little, I don't know what the word is, twisted, where something might be said, you know, like something like, oh, I could just strangle you. Yes, yes just all the time. They're all, like, like you said, these hands will do great things. Yes, yes. All of these little inside kind of dark jokes, they're intentional. The mm-hmm. other thing that I thought was interesting, I've seen this across two of the Hitchcock films that I've watched so far, is he starts with this huge aerial or broad shot yes. of a city or Establishing. a... Establishing. Yes. And then 
then zooms in yep. to this very, very tight, intimate yes. scene. In this case, we are starting with like, oh, it looks like this lovely little city view. And then you hear and a then scream. You, yes, you're zooming into a room where literally the murder is happening. Mm-hmm. As you go inside, they are strangling their friend to death. Mm-hmm. It was a powerful choice, I I think it was a powerful choice. In the book, It's Only a Movie, Alfred Hitchcock, A Personal Biography by Charlotte Chandler, I read that he didn't want to start it with the the murder, but I believe somebody else wanted him to. He wanted us as an audience to go, is someone in the trunk? Is someone not in the trunk? Oh, he wanted us to wonder. I I do think it's, it's very strong to know that he is in there. We saw it happening. And one thing that I thought was very powerful, a powerful visual, is Brandon Ty the dad's books with the rope that killed his son yeah he was so sick and twisted it it was horrifying Mm -hmm. and then the shot of the maid clearing the trunk and moving the books next to it you realize she's going to set them back in and i i had a pit in my stomach and i'm not even on their side right this is all while they're discussing the missing david and then they crack the trunk open i was like oh my gosh they got the trunk and then he just comes and closes it at the last second it was just oh i noted that exact scene that was one of the examples of how Hitchcock knows how to build suspense mm-hmm. and how his choice of where to aim that camera yes. made all the difference because you had the backs of the other people like and yeah. some of them were off camera you yeah. couldn't even there just there saw the back conversations of happening and you're watching this maid do this and you're like oh no oh, it's no. about to be revealed it's gonna happen right now also the way they introduce Jimmy Stewart's character is the camera just pans over and he's just there yes. you don't even see him come in he's just there yeah now I did read again in the same biography that I just referenced where Jimmy wasn't his first choice because right. they wanted Cary Grant to play mm-hmm. it and they just wanted someone that was a little more sexy in nature and just, just. but Jimmy was more of an everyman and Jimmy even said, I think I was miscast, yeah. but he was happy he did it because it led to his relationship with Hitchcock, which led to Rear Window and Vertigo and all these I other, those exact all these other films. Now, something else I thought was cool, another hat was used as a clue, just like in Angel Street. Remember, I remember when I watched mm-hmm. you in that the hat got left in there and in this case he got handed the wrong hat and it didn't fit his head yeah which is why he started putting it together yeah you know something i noted was how much this story reminded me of edgar Allan poe's the telltale heart oh it was so reminiscent of that which it actually made me wonder if the playwright you know was patrick hamilton inspired by Mm -hmm. that or were the filmmakers or or was it just happenstance but it was so reminiscent of that that was a huge thing that I couldn't get away from. The other thing I noticed was how intentional it was, how the different characters had a purpose they were there to fulfill. You could identify, here's David's father. He's meant to be almost the voice of morality. Yeah. Uh, Here's Rupert. He's kind of an antagonist. He's the detective and the antagonist. Here's the comic relief over here. They all had their roles, which was interesting. And I thought it was cute that since Cary Grant wasn't in it, they have that little, that conversation. (laughs) I'd take Cary Grant myself. And, you know, at that point, Jimmy had done the Philadelphia story with Cary Grant so mm-hmm. it would just be a little fun I liked that like a little easter egg or it something. was a little, a little easter nod. egg yes and I thought that Brandon really did just sit at Rupert's feet like a child yes. or a puppy he just you could tell he just really that wanted hero to impress worship. him so when Rupert aka Jimmy says you've thrown my own words back in my face Brandon later mm-hmm. on and another quote that I wrote down that was really powerful he says but what right do you dare say there's a superior few to which you belong and then is that what you thought when you served food from his grave nobody delivers lines like jimmy stewart Mm. nobody does i mean it's just like when he said that i was like whoa yeah 
And my, my final note is Rupert fired the shots and brought the outside world in. And then he sits and guards the grave while Brandon drinks, which I thought was a callback to him saying at the top that David's last drink should have been X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And on rewatch, I realized that Philip is the one that did the actual strangling. Mm -hmm. Brandon did not. So Philip is the one that was having, having this crisis of conscience because he's the one that actually committed the murder. Right, right. Fascinating. One last little note I'll throw out there is this was my first time watching the movie. And before I watched it, I was, I think, just getting a little preview for myself. Just when I started to Google and saw a clip, it was this beautiful little, oh, it was the trailer. That's exactly what it was. Uh It was the trailer. Mm -hmm. And it was Mm -hmm. this little romantic scene in Central Park. Mm -hmm. And it was taking place between the characters of Janet and David. Mm -hmm. And it gave you a little taste of what the movie was going to be. Obviously, it was a trailer. But then I started to watch the movie itself. And I'm like, where's that scene? It's not in it. And I saw in my research, they filmed it only for the trailer. How interesting that it's such a rare thing to do. Yeah. He said in this book that if you had seen that, then you couldn't have handled the rest of it. It's like you needed to, I guess you needed to be a little bit removed from David. So you just. You could focus on the other part of the suspense and what was happening, what was playing out with this little cat and mouse, because that's what it was. The whole thing was a cat and mouse. Yeah. Well, let's talk first about the movie and then we'll take a break, talk about the true crime and do our armchair. All All right. right. So you've already hit on some things that, that I had was going to note how it started in 1946. Alfred Hitchcock had fulfilled his contract with the very, very controlling David Oselznick, and this allowed him to join with his friend Sidney L. Bernstein to form the production company Transatlantic Pictures Corporation. And so for their very first film produced by their new company, they bought the play Rope as you've said, written by Patrick Hamilton in 1929, and it had been successfully performed in England and then later brought to America under the title Rope's End. Now, what's up with Patrick changing his titles back and forth, you know? Angel Street, Gaslight, or is that just something they do? Maybe it must have been a thing. Oh, oh, before you go on, I want to tell you a tiny little trivia. You said very, he did not have a good relationship with David O. Selznick, and it was rumored that, I can't remember this, so I may get this part wrong, but I think the O and David O. Selznick just stood for nothing. So, in North by Northwest, Cary Grant's character his initials are rot r-o-t and she says what does the o stand for and he says nothing so it's it's like a little insult to yeah. rot david o selznick that's funny sorry i just thought of that yeah i like it source after source that i came across as i was researching definitively stated that leopold and Loeb, the yeah. case that is yeah. infamous that we're about to talk about here in a bit was the inspiration for rope but i saw in a source or two that patrick hamilton denied being aware of the case while he was writing the script for real how was that why, even possible do... it was absolutely everywhere unless it's because he was in england and this is in america well that same source went on to say that his own brother said that it was based on the yeah, case. Come so on, guys. I think it must be a thing. Like the playwrights don't want to admit that they had an inspiration. Maybe it was a copyright issue even back then. Yeah. Well, you've already said, how do you say his last name? Hume Cronin? Oh, Hume Cronin. Okay. Mm-hmm. He is credited for the adaptation. Arthur Lorenz is credited for writing the screenplay that Hitchcock used. And their version was quite a bit different from the original play. Just to give a few quick examples, in the original version, there is no character, Janet, no Mrs. Wilson, no Kenneth or Mrs. 
Mrs. Atwater. The story is set in England, and Rupert is actually the current teacher of the two students who commit the murder. So oh, lots like of the, changes. I like the changes, though. I thought they I thought they added sparkle. Yeah, and most of the names are different. This movie was considered to be Alfred Hitchcock's most controversial movie when it was released in 1948. Several American theaters actually banned it mm. because of the implied romantic relationship between the two main characters who commit the murder, who are Brandon and Philip, as we've mm-hmm. already said. Mm-hmm. You've hit on a few of the casting notes that I had because I was just going to mention a few. One of them being that the first choice for Rupert was Cary Grant. When he didn't work out, they did decide to pay Jimmy Stewart $300,000 to play the role. As you said, he thought he was miscast. His point was he didn't feel like he fit the professor part very well. Mm -hmm. But as you said, he went on to do those other movies with Hitchcock, Rear Window, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Vertigo. And so he was very happy about the relationship that they developed. So Jimmy Stewart gave them the big name star. As we've said numerous times, especially back in this time period, they always felt like we need one big name Mm -hmm. to really give this film some credibility. So they had originally thought that they were going to go for the big name with Brandon's role. They wanted Montgomery Clift to play Brandon Shaw. He didn't want to do it because it would raise eyebrows. So they ended up getting John Dahl to do that role. The rest of the cast, they rounded out with less expensive, but dependable actors. They all had nice resumes behind them. Some of them, a lot of them had stage experience, which is important because we're going to talk about that in a minute. But as we've said, we had John Dahl, Farley Granger, Sir Cedric Hardwick, Constance Collier, Joan Chandler, Douglas Dick, Edith Evenson, and Dick Hogan. Poor Dick Hogan. (laughs) I know. (laughs) He went, ah! And then it was over. That was it. Yeah. But he was talking about a lot yes alfred hitchcock as we know he always makes a cameo in this movie he was a man walking on the sidewalk during the opening credits i, I had to look for i had I to try to find, find him. him i think he was part of the couple there was Do a, you yes okay i don't I think he was the man him. that was by himself because it didn't look like his silhouette to me yes i think it was the couple yeah i rewatched it and i still couldn't figure out which one he was right well about the famous filming technique of the long shot so amazing Do you yeah. want to know i'll tell you there was 10 shots first one was nine minutes 34 seconds 751 718, 709, 959, 835, 750, 1006, 437, and 540, according to IMDb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, if you haven't checked this out, I saw a lot of the same trivia on the movie itself. Like if you rent the movie from Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. one of the little features available to you is movie trivia. Oh, it is? Yes. What? And Show I'm telling you that. something like a hundred notes about this movie. And and what? The one that you just named Uh was in there. Okay. Yes. But yeah, shout out to them. I used a lot of sources, but that was actually one of my sources as well. Yeah. So the movie they reference, if you watch it, the one they're talking about, they can't think of the names of the people. It's Notorious with Cary Grant in it. That's also from IMDb. Nice. Nice. Well, what I found across different sources, and you chime in here because I know that this is, this technique is something that you've mentioned to me before. I know this is something you really love, but apparently Hitchcock had played with this idea for years, the idea of creating a film that was basically shot in one long uninterrupted take. Both the trivia section that I just mentioned and Turner Classic Movies said that part of the reason why he decided to use long takes with this particular movie, Rope, was because he'd actually seen it done already. Mm. There was a BBC television broadcast of Rope in 1939. They called it experimental television. Mm -hmm. But in that production, the producer, Dallas Bauer, had actually used the technique in order to keep the murder chest constant 
constantly yeah, yeah, in yeah. the shot. Oh, I love it. I think that's such a smart idea. Yes. It, and I also thought that it was because it was based on the play, it made sense to kind of film it in this one take, but the technical prowess was just super impressive. And when you're ready for it, I have a quote from that biography that they talk about the filming process. Okay. Well, we'll get to that in just okay. a second. One article came right out and said that Hitchcock was not the first filmmaker to use long takes. They wanted to clarify. Mm-hmm. Other filmmakers were experimenting with long takes, but the difference was these other filmmakers and directors were basically doing kind of like, what's the word? They were embedding some of these long takes in the midst of a lot of short takes sure. and a lot of shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hitchcock was wanting to do something very different. He wanted it to appear as though the entire film was one yes. long take without yes. any cuts. And that's why, as you've already said, he had to do it in this series of nine or ten takes. They were varying lengths. They couldn't go any longer than about ten minutes because that's the, the maximum amount yep, yep. that the film and the camera magazine would hold. And then some of them were, you said the shortest one was like four and a half minutes. Yeah. But his movie ends up being that just nine or ten of these yeah. long takes, which was hugely challenging. Before I keep going, go ahead and give me your quote, okay. please. This is again from It's Only a Movie, a okay. personal biography. So this is from page 172 in the book. A quote, Our roving Technicolor camera had to poke its lens into every nook and cranny of the collapsible Sutton Place apartment of the killers, Hitchcock told me. I'm assuming the author of the book. Mm-hmm. Prop men were crouching everywhere, set to pounce on furniture and pull it out of the way <laughs> of the camera and and then replace it after it had passed. Everyone was signaling everyone else to move something that had to be moved. Even the actors were moving chairs or catching people who had to fall out of the way of the camera. Then, if someone fluffed a line, even in the last mm-hmm. few seconds of the nine-minute take, we had to shoot it again from three to six times. This was especially trying for Mr. Dick Hogan, whose performance after being garroted consisted of lying in the dark of an antique chest for almost ten minutes listening to the mayhem. Oh my gosh, I had not run across the fact that he... Which makes perfect sense. I just hadn't put it together in my mind that after they put him in that chest, he doesn't get to come out until yeah, that take is over. Until the take is over. And if they're repeating it time and time again, there he goes. Yes. I think it was fascinating to me to, to think through all the implications. I have a few more quotes from this as well. Basically, to go back to what you said a minute ago, the camera had to be kept in continuous motion because what they were trying to create was the illusion that the audience member was almost an invisible visitor. Like you were part of their scene. You were kind of like there in the room watching them. So without having any time lapses, they felt like this continuous action would also make it feel like it was kind of unspooling in real time. Yes, yes. So to piggyback on what you just read, to shoot this way, almost all of their props and even some of the apartment set's walls were on these casters and the crew would have to wheel things Mm -hmm. out of the way and then back into position as the camera was moving around the set. And so when they actually had to change at the end of this one take, they would find a way to to make you feel like it hadn't ended. So what they would typically do is they would zoom in on a person's back yes. or some kind of an object like the raised trunk lid yeah. and then it would zoom back out and it would still seem like that same take was continuing. Right. Now, Hitchcock always claimed that there were no conventional edits. This was all done with this one long take technique. But one of my sources said, well, you know what? It pretty much was all this one long take technique, but actually there were a few conventional edits such as after Philip shouts, that's a lie. And when Mrs. Wilson enters the room to announce the telephone call from David's mother, Mm. 
But piggybacking on what you said, because of not wanting to make mistakes and be the person who caused the whole yes. thing to have to have to be reshot, yes. it was so stressful for the oh, actors. Yeah. According to Turner Classic Movies, meanwhile, the actors, even though they were stage trained professionals, were terrified to flub a line of dialogue as the mistake would require a 10 minute reshoot. While they were trying to remember their lines and hit their marks, stagehands were whisking away furniture and walls to make yes. way for the gigantic Technicolor camera. Finally, even the mild-mannered Jimmy Stewart had had enough asking Hitchcock why, if he was so intent on capturing the feel of live theater, he didn't just set up seats at the studio and sell tickets. <laughs> That's so funny. I've got another quote here on page 173 from Farley Granger. He describes his rope experiences. And so first it's about his casting. He says, quote, the studio had been yelling for me to get back from New York. It was to do rope. Of course, as soon as I knew it was a Hitchcock film, I could have flown back without a plane. So that tells you how highly <laughs> yes, regarded he how was. How excited he was. And then he said, those tricky long takes caused so many problems. The camera, for instance, was an enormous monster. As the camera moved, they would break away the walls and there'd be people moving the lights at the same time to keep you in the light. Then, for instance, you have to sit down just out of camera range and there was always a stagehand there with a seat to slip under you at just the last minute. I saved Constance Collier once because I saw she was ready to sit down and there was no chair. <laughs> she and Sir Cedric Hardwick were the jolliest of the group. All the young people were taking it very seriously and they were having a ball. And they said Hitch would say, what's next? And he'd go over and look at the book and then he'd say, oh yes, okay. <laughs> so it's just That's crazy. It's, but well, it's kind it's of a, exciting and, yes. you know, fun and trying to accomplish this technical feat. Mm -hmm. I think it would be very fun. Well, and to be fair, the two characters, Brandon and Philip, they're in the whole thing. Yes. Like some of the others get to come in and out a little yeah. bit. They're, they're in it from the get-go. So mean, in Philip's character, that could be part of why he's like unraveling. He's like, I can't handle like, this anymore. Oh, how much more? Is it almost over? <laughs> yeah. I had another example to, to add to the one you gave us already. They were so focused on not messing up takes that reportedly, according to the trivia, at one point, the, the camera, yeah. yes, the camera dolly ran over and broke a cameraman's foot. But they in order stuffed to a towel or something in his mouth so he wouldn't scream. They covered his mouth and dragged him yes. off. Yes. And another time, a woman puts her glass down but misses the table. A stagehand had to rush up and catch it before it hit the ground. Both of those parts made it into the final movie. Like they just kept going They're and like, it made it. it in the film. Yes. And then they hit some snags that they could not fix. So the last four or five segments had to be completely reshot because Hitchcock did not like the way the sunset was coming across in oh, the backdrop. Honey, honey. To at totally some point you gotta them. go, no, it is what it is. Let it go. Let, Let it, it go, go, man. Now, just a little side note, the film's response was disappointing. I know. I read a 19, I got to see the actual 1948 New York Times review and I skimmed through and here's a little excerpt that was focused specifically on that strategy of the continuous long tail Quote, with due regard for his daring and for that of transatlantic films, one must bluntly observe that the method is neither effective nor does it appear that it could be. For apart from the tedium of waiting for someone to open that chest and discover the hidden body, which the hosts have tucked away for the sake of a thrill, the unpunctuated flow of image becomes quite monotonous. I'd say you're just Mr. Grumpy Gills because that was fascinating. <laughs> I know. And I even thought that going into this, I had, I had seen it a long time ago because I tried to watch all all of his films when I was a teenager. And I remembered thinking it was amazing, but I just remember thinking that it was amazing only for the take. When I went back and watched it, I was like, this is a fantastic. So suspenseful. So fantastic. And I found several, at least one YouTuber that says, I think this is the best Hitchcock film that he ever made. 
because of how simple it was and how suspenseful it was. It was so suspenseful. And there was no ambiguity. It was so clear. Mm -hmm. These are villains and I want them to get caught. You start with the inciting incident. You could not start with any more of an inciting incident. And and you're just waiting. You're like, you just want them to get caught so badly. Mm -hmm. And so... But then when they almost are, you're like, oh no, oh no. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, well, it adds to the suspense, but I still want them to get caught. Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) An interesting last little note before, before we go to break is that the movie was unavailable for three decades because its distribution rights along with the rights for Rear Window The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Trouble with Harry and Vertigo were owned by Hitchcock and left as part of his legacy to his daughter Patricia and so they kind of just disappeared. It's the lost five Hitchcock films. They were known as the infamous five lost Hitchcocks and they were re-released in theaters around 1984 after all that time had passed when they were found again. That's amazing and those are some of the most well-known ones. I mean, Rear Window Those and Vertigo? Big ones. Yes. Well, we are going to be talking a lot more about the movie. We're going to analyze it in our armchair at the end after we talk about the true crime. So come back after the break and we're going to talk about Leopold and Loeb. Where do you sip your scandal water? Do you catch up on the tea while folding your laundry? Sitting at your work desk? Working out at the gym? With the new year, we are also ringing in a few fun changes at Scandalwater, and one of them is including more listeners' voices in our episodes. So send in your shout-out, telling us your first name, your hometown, and where you are or what you're doing when you listen to Scandalwater, and you just might hear a voice you recognize starting one of our upcoming 2024 episodes. Email your audio clip to scandalwaterpodcast at gmail.com. The voice memo app on your phone will work just fine. Cheers! And we are back to talk about one of the most sensational and famous cases of all time. It really is. Yeah, we talked about this back Maureen when we Dallas did. Maureen Dallas-Watkins, yes. our girl. Back during those Chicago episodes. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Maureen's going to come up in a Yay! little bit. Yay! I just missed briefly. her. Just I missed briefly. her. Leopold and Loeb is so sensational and so famous that it has inspired a number of works, not just this one. Some of the others would be Compulsion, which was a 1959 film, Swoon from 1992, and even Murder by Numbers, yeah, Sandra, Sandra Bullock. Bullock from mm-hmm. 2002. Wasn't Ryan Gosling? He was. He was very young, but yes, yeah. he was. So here's the lead from a 2018 Chicago Tribune article about the book, The Leopold and Loeb Files. Wednesday, May 21st, 1924, a bit after 5 p.m. to be precise, 14-year-old Bobby Franks was lured into a car as he walked toward his Hyde Park home. He was beaten to death by two wealthy University of Chicago students, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, who dumped the boy's body near Wolf Lake in Indiana, confessed to the murder, and were brought to trial for what would become, perhaps until O.J. came calling, the crime of the century. And that's how it was referenced, the crime of the century. And I think uh, that's a little bit out of order. It sounds like they did it, then confessed. They were not planning on confessing. Oh, no. Yeah, we're going to go through all of it. Yeah. Do you want to share anything else about the case before I kind of tell you how it laid out uh no i just want everyone to remember that maureen was one of the ones that helped crack it just just so you're all out there just <laughs> i want to give a fan i am such a fan girl i mean she did remember yeah, yeah. she asked these questions of i forget what the question was but she asked them something who do you admire most maybe mm-hmm. and i think nietzsche was one of the people yes. he said and she's like oh dude these guys totally did it that's my modern day <laughs> your, your, your paraphrase your 
paraphrase. my paraphrase of what she said in her brain. That may or may not come up here in just Ooh. a minute. Okay. Yeah. Well, in 1924, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, whose nickname was Dick or Dickie, and I'll just call him that. I'll just call him Dickie. Sure. To kind of keep them straight. Had been friends for four years. They were both teenagers from wealthy families who were attending the University of Chicago. They were both also brilliant and they knew it. Mm. At 19 and 18 years old, they were both already graduate students. So according to a... Like high, uh, high school or college? College. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. According to a Smithsonian article, Nathan Leopold's father was described as, quote, an astute businessman who had inherited a shipping company and had made a second fortune in aluminum can and paper box manufacturing. Nathan appeared to have a very promising future as he was not only highly intellectual, but also an amateur ornithologist who had already published two papers in the AUK, which was the leading ornithological journal in the U.S. In 1924, Leopold, who was 19, Nathan, was studying law at the University of Chicago already. So this is where he was, okay? Now, Dickie Loeb's father was vice president of Sears Roebuck and Company with an estimated fortune of 10 million. Mm. He was the third son in a family of four boys, and he graduated high school at the age of 14. Wow. I know, and started college in Chicago before transferring to the University of Michigan his sophomore year because he was not applying himself. <laughs> and But although he did not apply himself as a student, he still managed to graduate from Michigan. And in 1924, when he was only 18, he was back in Chicago taking graduate courses in history. Wow. So these were two smart boys. Yeah. But what's going to keep coming back is, and they knew it. Yeah. Arrogant. Yeah. Oh, beyond. Well, according to that same Smithsonian article, the two had been friends since 1920. And by this point, all the sources agree that a romantic relationship had developed between the two of them. Mm -hmm. They had also started to go on little escapades together where they would do things like commit simple burglaries and set small fires and basically just look for little thrills, Mm -hmm. see what they could get away with. At one point, just to give an example, they drove hours to the University of Michigan to burglarize the fraternity that Dickie had belonged to when he went there and then were disappointed when all they managed to steal was $80 in loose change, a few watches, some pen knives, and a typewriter. So those typewriters were heavy back then. Well, that's, that's true. But but they were they were just looking. They were just yeah, looking for thrills. Yeah, they were so thrills, smart looking. that they were bored. Yes. They and, were so smart. And they were smart. getting into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounded to me, as somebody who was doing all this research, and I did do quite a bit of research mm-hmm. because this was yet another case where I would run across conflicting information and then I would keep checking across multiple sources to see what came up the most. Mm-hmm. But from all descriptions, it sounds like these two fed into each other's beliefs and obsessions. Mm-hmm. We because, would call it a toxic relationship. Oh, now. yes. And they just they just built, they just developed from each other's toxicity. Mm-hmm. So Dickie Loeb seemed to be very drawn to the thrill of destructive acts, while Nathan Leopold seemed to be the one who was more obsessed with the philosophy of Frederick Nietzsche, who said there was a, that idea of the Superman, mm-hmm. this ideology that there was a Superman who was so far superior to the ordinary man that he was actually above the law and above any moral or ethical parameters that normal people should be held to. Right. So Nathan believed that it was even acceptable for a Superman to commit murder, you know, any act, if it gave him pleasure, because mm-hmm. he was superior 
superior to everyone else. Now, I believe Dickie also believed that philosophy, but it sounded as though Nathan was kind of the ringleader in that regard. Yeah. So in 1923, when Dickie Loeb suggested the two should kidnap and murder a child to see if they could commit the perfect crime and also make some money while they were at it by asking for a ransom, it didn't seem like it was really hard to convince Nathan to do it. Not only because of their shared beliefs, but also it was said in several sources that one of Nathan's chief goals was to make Dickie happy because Mm -hmm. the two were in this relationship. Mm -hmm. So the two spent months planning this event Mm -hmm. down to the most minute detail, even though they did not have a specific target in mind. Yeah. So on the day that they decided they were going to implement their plan, they rented a car and they set about trying to find a victim. Here's how the Smithsonian article described it. Quote, on the afternoon of May 21st, 1924, Leopold and Loeb drove their rental car slowly around the streets of the south side of Chicago looking for a possible victim. At five o'clock, after driving around Kenwood for two hours, they were ready to abandon the kidnapping for another day. But as Leopold drove north along Ellis Avenue, Loeb, sitting in the rear passenger seat, suddenly saw his cousin, Bobby Franks. I didn't no, it was his cousin. His cousin. Well, it was like a second cousin. Oh. It was, but he was a relative oh. who lived down the street. Mm. Walking south on the opposite side of the road, Bobby's father, Loeb knew, was a wealthy businessman who would be able to pay the ransom. He tapped Leopold on the shoulder to indicate they had found their victim. Leopold turned the car in a circle, driving slowly down Ellis Avenue, gradually pulling alongside Bobby. Hey, Bob! Loeb shouted from the rear window. The boy turned slightly to see the car stop by the curb. Loeb leaned forward into the front passenger seat to open the front door. Hello, Bob. I'll give you a ride. The boy shook his head. He was almost home. Mm. No, I can walk. Come on in the car. I want to talk to you about the tennis racket you had yesterday. I want to get one for my brother. They had actually been playing tennis together. They oh. These are like neighbors down the street yeah. who were, they were not first cousins. I think I saw other sources clarify that it was like second cousins, yeah. but they were related they were in related. some way. Now, I'm also going to point out something very important. I actually got to read some of the transcripts from their confession. Mm-hmm. In this article, they have Leopold driving and Dickie in the back seat. But when the two boys would later confess, both of them would say the other one was the one who did the murder. Like each of them would say, I was the driver. The other guy was in the back seat. So we don't. We don't know. Really know for sure. Okay. Because they both blame the other one. Okay. Okay. But just we're going to continue with this story since this is what we've started with. Tragically, they were able to convince Bobby Franks to get in the car. And okay, this guys be ready. This is this is sad, tragic and disturbing but with innocent young sweet Bobby Frank sitting in the passenger seat whoever was in the back the college student in the back suddenly reached over the seat and grabbed Bobby with his left hand covering Bobby's mouth to keep him from yelling while using the other hand to smash Bobby over Mm. the head twice with a chisel no no no. oh no it's worse and then Bobby fights he twists he you know his body's twisted around but he is still conscious so the murderer hits him more times now because he's kind of turn now this time it's in the forehead because he's kind of facing him by this point Bobby's head was bleeding profusely and the blood was not only on the murderer's pants but it's also on the seat in the floor but Bobby was still fighting for his life so the murderer suddenly grabbed Bobby pulled him like over the front seat and into the back of the car with him and when he was there with him kind of holding him up against him he jammed a rag way down Bobby's throat and then tore off a large strip of adhesive tape which he used to tape his mouth shut and then they said after it didn't take too long before Bobby stopped crying and moaning. My gosh. Yeah, I know. And when he let go of him, Bobby slid down to the floorboard and the investigators would later determine that he had died of bludgeoning and suffocation. Oh my gosh. 
gosh. I know. So the two went on with their plan. They drove to Indiana, actually stopping on the way to get some food at a sandwich shop while Bobby is dead in the car. And then... I have heard, I have, I'm going to tell you, I have heard this story so many times and your recounting of it just, it brought tears to my eyes because it's just horrifying. It is beyond horrifying. And to think he was playing tennis with yes. this boy, this boy, he was related to this, this boy trusted them and they are just so, it's beyond heartless and brutal. It yeah. is the... Just to do it. Yeah. Just to do it. Just to do it. And stop and get some food. Let's get a hot dog. Yeah. Also, Scotty has joined us, so you're yeah. going to hear him. Yeah. Well, we might need a little we need, comfort, I need a right, little comfort now. right now. Anyway, eventually they picked an isolated spot they liked, and there they carried Bobby's body over to a culvert and undressed him, and they poured hydrochloric acid on his I, face to poor, distort poor his features baby. before they put him in the culvert. I'm. It just, it was unbelievable. So upon returning to the city later that night, they dropped a ransom letter demanding $10,000 into a post box, cleaned up the rental car. Now this is like kind of spread out, but I'm just kind of giving you the, mm-hmm. the details of what they did. They burned Bobby's clothes at Dickie's house, and then they went to a drugstore where Leopold, I'm assuming this is some kind of a payphone or whatever, they called the Frank's house telling Miss Frank's that their son had been kidnapped, gosh. which if I recall correctly, caused her to literally faint with oh the gosh. horror of this. These two college guys had the whole plan figured out for how the ransom would happen. I'm not going to give you all those details, but basically it all fell apart when Bobby's body was discovered the next day and identified very quickly. Yes. In addition to that, the police found a very distinctive pair of glasses Mm -hmm. that appeared to have been dropped at the crime scene by the killer. I think originally they thought they might belong to Bobby, but they quickly figured out it didn't. I forget where I've heard this now, but they said there was only three pairs of glasses that had been made and it was the um, what's this part? The stem? This this Oh the yeah. The, it was the hinge. It wasn't even the style of glasses. It was a particular mm-hmm. hinge that there was only three, and that's how they narrowed it down. Absolutely. It was they traced it back to a Chicago optometrist who it was one of three people. The other two they quickly ruled out, and the third one was Nathan Leopold. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before I go on with the story, here's the interesting callback to, to Maureen. Maureen. Back when we did the two part Chicago episode and we mentioned Maureen Watkins, we were talking about that case with Belva Gartner and Beulah Annan. Well, actually, both of their cases. Yeah. And at that time, we shared that Maureen Watkins actually managed to get into the funeral of Bobby Franks, which then led to her getting assigned to cover the story. Mm-hmm. So the author of a Crime Reads article about this event wrote... Quote, the funeral was supposed to be a private affair, but a detailed newspaper account survives because an ambitious young reporter for the Chicago Daily Tribune managed to crash the event posing as a mourner. The reporter, incidentally, was Maureen Watkins, who would later go on to write the play that became the musical Chicago. Mr. Emery again read from the scriptures, she wrote. Mrs. Franks, assisted by Bobby's sister Josephine and her brother, stood for a long time at the door of the mausoleum, looking down at the coffin where her boy lay. Then they put aside the blanket of Crimson Buds and placed the slab 1901 to 1924 Robert Franks Mm. and what this person pointed out was that had Maureen not crashed that funeral they would have never known what happened that like that account like survives of what happened at the funeral yes yes. yeah and I believe that we remember from back then that obviously murder is never fun or funny or anything it's always horrible but with Belva and Beulah they were just such just awful women but you could kind of have a little fun 
fun and make fun of them. And then she covered this case immediately after and it sort of gave her that the same thing we're feeling that pit in the stomach of there's no way you can make fun of this. There's no way you can make fun of these men. This is too horrid. And I think she quit. She did. She quit right after. In fact, what happened was she tried to make some of those like barbs Sarcastic. and they didn't land. No. That's the next part of what okay. I was going to share. Yeah. We said that Douglas Perry in the research for his book, he talked about how Maureen from the very beginning was not like the other people who immediately assumed these two boys were innocent because mm-hmm. of their wealth and their mm-hmm. status and their mm-hmm. background. She from the beginning felt something was off about them and she okay remember the scene you mentioned she found herself the only woman reporter in the room during a media Q&A with the boys and with each reporter being allowed to ask only one question she decided to ask what three men do you consider the greatest that ever lived okay and that's when Leopold said Nietzsche was one of his who believed in the superior man the other was Hackle who thought there was no immortality of the soul and nothing beyond this life and Epicurus who advocated the right of the individual to do as he pleased uh, and that, that tells you all you need to know right well that group press conference actually occurred right before dicky Lowe broke down and the boys confessed well we're going to talk more about that in a second so to wrap up this part with maureen Watkins, she will later end up being one of the journalists covering the trial and about that point we made that that kind of went a little sour mm-hmm. and also this war on her so douglas perry said in his book quote maureen had little interest in imparting any actual news with her report she was simply out to ridicule to hit the two wealthy criminals where she knew it would hurt them most Ego. their egos and he commented that her approach apparently worked because even 25 years later leopold would say how deeply he hated the chicago tribune and nina Bear who wrote a book that I've already mentioned, actually, The Leopold and Loeb Files, an intimate look at one of America's most infamous crimes. She (laughs) commented, few reporters blurred the lines between fact and fiction with as much flair and abandon as Watkins. Mm -hmm. So this was the case that that caused her to decide to give this up. And that's Mm -hmm. what led to Chicago getting Mm -hmm. written. That's right. That's right. But to go back into our timeline, we mentioned that there was a confession. What happened was this. Remember, it did happen not long after that press conference where Maureen Watkins had a chance to ask a question. It actually was the glasses that did them in. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tracking down the glasses had led to the questioning of Nathan Leopold, who handled it like it was no big deal. He was aloof. He was poised. He said all the right things. Mm -hmm. He was unflappable when the police were questioning him. He said that, oh, you know, I'm an ornithologist and I go there. I've led so many expeditions, bird watching expeditions. I must have just dropped the glasses Mm -hmm. while I was on one of those bird watching trips. And they were like, Starting to believe They were going with him the way it sounded. But in conjunction with questioning him, they also searched his home, his room, where they found a letter to Dickie, which caused them to realize that there was a romantic relationship Mm. possibly going Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And because part of their story had been that they were on a date with these two girls, things all of a sudden didn't line up. And this led to questioning of Dickie, and Dickie is the one who broke down and confessed. Once he confessed, Nathan did as well. And so... Because now he's going to take glory from the confession of, yeah, I did it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And they tell it all, except for they blame each other for the actual murder. Leopold would be quoted as saying, quote, 
A thirst for knowledge is highly commendable, no matter what extreme pain or injury it may inflict upon others. And then also, it was just an experiment. It is as easy for us to justify as an entomologist in impaling a beetle on a pin. No. They no. had no remorse. They no. thought they were so superior mm. to everyone that this was just their right in life yeah. to do this because they were just curious about what it would be like and they mm. wanted to try to commit the perfect crime. As we've said, this was the most sensational case in history at that time, the, the crime of the century. Because of their parents' wealth, they were able to have the best defense that money could buy. And in that same book I've now mentioned a few different times, the author Nina Barrett wrote this. Clarence Darrow and his wife Ruby were asleep in their Chicago apartment in the wee hours of June 2nd when Loeb's uncle Jacob and Nathan Leopold Sr. frantically rang the doorbell. They barged past Ruby to the bedroom where they demanded that a very startled Clarence defend the boys. They would pay him any fee he wow. asked for. They had Clarence Darrow defending them. Yeah. yeah, they did. Everyone agrees that Clarence Darrow showed how masterful he was as a criminal defense lawyer. He saved lawyer. their lives, yep. right? He saved their lives. These were two fellas who confessed yeah. to cold-blooded murder, and he kept them from being sentenced to death. His closing argument went on for hours. One source said 12 hours. Another source commented it was split across it? three days. What are you going to say in 12 hours? How are you going to say anything? I'm... What can be said? Well, to be fair, it sounded like it wasn't just a speech from him. It sounded like they allowed him as part of this closing argument to bring in psychiatrists oh, and okay. experts, okay. all of these people. And they were making all the arguments. They were making arguments that it's because they had been raised by governesses. Mm -hmm. It was because they had been stunted by their privilege. A PBS documentary commented that Darrow's strategy was to point to a number of factors that influenced the boys to do what they did, including physical and mental deficiencies. But no accountability for self. Right. Well, law it's professor... It's not my fault. Exactly. Law professor Philip Johnson described Darrow's argument this way. Quote, nature made them do it. Evolution made them do it. Nietzsche made them do it. So they should not be sentenced to death for it. Uh, yeah, they should because they did it. Well, they were spared execution, but they were both sentenced to life plus 99 years. Mm -hmm. Dickie Loeb died in 1936 when he was attacked by a fellow inmate, James Day, who had a razor. Mm. And Nathan Leopold was released from prison in 1958 after serving 34 years he got a job he got married and he lived quietly until his death in 1971 yeah he just went into obscurity mm -hmm. so then you wonder would he have gone into all this if not for the influence of the other one you know I don't know. I, I mean, know. I, I, they fed each other. They like, did. Like, had either one of them come across somebody who said to them, you are not that special. You are not superior. Everything you're doing is and thinking is wrong. Mm -hmm. Would it have changed anything? I don't know. The, enti the entitlement they felt, the narcissism they felt. And why was he released early? What? Well, I mean, he served behavior? 34 years. But yeah, he was a model prisoner from all accounts. Mm. Armchair Psychologist. Well, for our armchair, I thought we would now bring it all together. Okay. So okay. we've talked about the true crime. We've introduced the movie. What are some of the ways that we see the influence of the true crime on the movie? Well, you see it with the relationship between the two main characters. You mm -hmm. see the dominant one and the submissive one. You see the arrogance. Oh my gosh. Beyond. The horrid arrogance. Especially with Brandon. Yes. I believe Leopold was the more dominant one, right? Or 
or was it Loeb? Well, it's interesting because there are actually theories now that all this time we thought it was one way, but it was actually the other. The so quiet I'm one. not even Who sure knows? anymore. It yes. doesn't even matter. They're yes. both, they were both wicked and did a horrid thing. So in, in the fictional part, we got Brandon, who is the dominant, and Philip, who is the submissive. And the way that they just felt, because I can. And, and mm-hmm. okay, so now it makes more sense, the comparison between, I didn't realize that Bobby was a relative, but they chose someone they knew. Mm-hmm. I thought they just chose an actual stranger to kill, so I thought it was odd that in Rope, they knew the person that they were killing. I mean, it was a, an acquaintance, a school chum, but they knew Bobby. They knew yes. Bobby. Yes, and, and cold-blooded, didn't care. No. Like, there was not an ounce of feeling. No. Yes, that was that was a clear parallel. And obviously, like, I felt like it was it was on the nose. Like, it was right in our faces. They kept talking about, we are superior, mm-hmm. and, you know, we are allowed to do this. You know, I mean, like, some of the dialogue almost felt like it could have come from the Leopold and, and Loeb maybe it case. did. We'd have to we'd have to look at the transcript to see. But like like Jimmy's character Rupert says, "Who gave you the right? Mm-hmm. Who gave you the right to play God and decide?" We don't, I don't remember if that's a full thing, but that's what they're doing. They're playing like who gets to live and who gets to die. You get to choose. Mm-hmm. And then Brandon, that was part of it. Was oh gosh, I don't even know what the right term would be for this. But he just kept wanting to escalate it, like mm-hmm. like oh, it's not enough that we have now let's serve food from his grave. Yes, you know we were let's we literally have the dinner or the food whatever already set out over here on this table Mm -hmm. no 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 let's bring it all in and put it right on this chest let's tie the rope right the very rope i'm gonna put in you know i'm gonna use this to tie up the books to give to his father psychological damage that's done to the victim's family oh yeah and then he's gonna the dad is gonna look at that i mean obviously it's not real but in the film world the dad is gonna look at that rope later and go this is the this is what he did Mm -hmm. how sick are these people yeah it was just just beyond arrogance in fact janet was interesting because she called out brandon of course she knows nothing about what he's done with the murder but just the fact that he maliciously brings her into this situation Uh where he's putting her ex-boyfriend triangulating yes and you know used to date brandon himself and she's like she says something about I can't remember her terminology, but basically, you know, how manipulative are you? What kind of game are you playing? This is sick. Mm -hmm. And she calls him out and you're thinking to yourself, you have no idea idea. how sick he is and how much he thinks this is a game. Yeah. And it's almost like he's killed the rival so his buddy can get back together with Janet. But then you find out he's not even interested in getting back together with Janet. They're fine being friends and they've talked it through and they're fine. It's just funny to him. It's like little chess pieces. funny to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cat and mouse was what I kept coming back to. I, I felt like there was so much cat and mouse. He thought he was the cat and he was, you know, getting away with everything. And he was playing mm-hmm. everybody in the room, even Philip, you know, like he, he liked controlling Philip, I mm-hmm. think, too. And then it was fun as the audience member to watch Rupert become the cat and Brandon yes. become the mouse. Yes. And that was very satisfying. Mm-hmm. It was also satisfying from the perspective of somebody who loves a mystery when you were literally watching the clues fall into place. I I was wondering when Rupert was going to figure it out because it seemed like for a while he was just having a conversation. It's like, when, when is the moment, what do they say that gives him the clue that this is not what it appears to be? Well, and, and you could see it, like you could see it layering. I jotted a few of them, you know, when Janet and Kenneth put together that Brandon already knew that she and David were engaged. Mm -hmm. Oh, this was intentional. And then when you had Rupert in 
the maid discussing how the men acted so crazy that morning and how they had to mm-hmm. change the dinner, you know. And then to me, Rupert finding the hat That's and it. seeing the initials yeah. was the glasses. Yes. That yes. was the parallel with the oh, glasses. Yes. And, and the was, initials, because only one person could have this hat. Exactly. So that's, that's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, there we go. You know, another thing that occurred to me was the use of the chest. You know, I we mm-hmm. mentioned before that in that, that TV version of Rope that had inspired Hitchcock, that they the reason they had used the long take there was because they wanted to keep the chest always yes. in view. Yes. And I thought how interesting it was how the chest was so prominent in front of us. Like we talked already about the suspenseful scene where it looks like the maid's going to yeah. open it. But you all had so many moments where, you know, after he's put inside that chest where the rope's hanging out at one point. Yeah. Or at the end, it was really interesting that Rupert has his back to us like he like his face is not even there but he's sitting beside that chest you know so Mm -hmm. I just felt like there was so much symbolism and so much intentionality with the film choices the Mm -hmm. the 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 camera technique Mm -hmm. with that chest it was beautiful beautifully done so you mentioned Jimmy Stewart's final scene yeah I think that was interesting because there was so much commentary about morality mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. because these men were clearly immoral amoral whatever the term would be they were just so above any ethical boundaries and you had the voice I think of morality with David's father when he was they were having this big discussion and they started to share their thoughts about Superman yes and and, and it was David's father the father of the man who'd been murdered who kept kind of questioning them Rupert did a lot of listening he didn't actually mm-hmm. he wasn't actually the voice of reason mm-hmm. there but then Rupert at the end, to me, it was kind of like Hitchcock or the screenwriter, both of them having their opportunity to say, now here's the lesson of this. I think so too. Yeah. Here's what we need to learn from this. And it was, there was no holding back. He straight up said it. What you, you said it, what gives you the right? Who do you think you are? And that's where you get this really powerful statement about, you know, honoring life and Mm -hmm. nobody else having the right to do something like this to another human being. And it was just, I don't know, it was just a powerful way to end. It really, really was. And and I think it's also a powerful way for maybe us to end because, so. because that's the lesson, Yeah. right? The lesson of all this is from the true crime and from the story both. Gosh, I mean. What gives you the right? What right. gives you the right? And also listen to your gut. Mm-hmm. Don't, if you don't, if you don't feel right, I mean, we say this over and over, every true crime we go over, like poor little Bobby. I'm so glad that we remember Bobby's name, name mm-hmm. too, because a lot of times in these infamous true crime things you just remember the killer's name right and that's not right we need to remember bobby franks too right and you know what we have a couple of pictures of him that will be in the show notes okay, he good. looked like the sweetest mm-hmm. person you'd ever met in your life and so you know what that's who we will cheers absolutely cheers, cheers to bobby franks cheers If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. 
It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.